Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Gabriel Galvez is a career entrepreneur turned private equity investor. He successfully exited his first company at age 23, followed by a career in consulting and banking before starting a number of companies that service the private equity and investment banking industry. Now, rather than investing in a specific asset, class, or industry, his firm Verde Holdings focuses on backing smart entrepreneurs in owning in their own buy and build journeys. Outside of the work he he spends, let me take that again. Can't talk today for some reason. Outside of work, outside of work, he spends his time water surfing, mentoring young professionals, and talking about the wonders of the universe with anyone who will listen. Gabe, welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Glad to be here. So, listen, Gabe. Before we talk about your involvement with Verde Holdings and your early deals, and you also have Cap Trust and Merger Labs and all these different ways that you're involved in the deal world. I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is a this involved in the M&A market in the private equity market in various ways probably wasn't in at that age, but you tell me. No, I think your assumption's correct there. <clears throat> I, I think there's the sort of politically correct answer, which was I was interested in this idea of entrepreneurship and learned that word at an early age for a book report or something. Okay. I think it was fourth grade and, and my dad was an entrepreneurial guy, had a bunch of businesses, a kind of classic first gen immigrant story there, hustling away. But the, the less PC answer, I wanted to be rich. I was <laughs> interested in, I mean, my perspective on this has evolved over the years, but I was really interested in stuff. I was really interested in this idea of a successful story arc as a kid. I think we, we all have been exposed and different eras to sort of the folklore of people and all the great things, sometimes not so great things they do that are all are, are kind of woven into pop culture America now. So however you want to position it, I was really interested in the fruits of that labor one way or the other. I love it. Listen, I, I appreciate the straight up answer. It's, it's, I think it's true for more people than would, than would say it. And, and, and you made a a comment about your evolution, and then we can talk about that as as we go forward. But one le- one question, one other question. Looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could be something when you were small as a kid, or one or an early deal in in, in your adult career, or whatever comes to mind. Well, I think that the deal making function for me really started to I started to get exposure to in my first job. Well, more or less, my first my first job where I got a little paycheck. Yeah, And uh, that was working at a pawn shop here in San Diego as a 15-year-old. Who knows what was going on with labor laws in <laughs> early 90s, whenever that was. 
And it was sort of street level, but it was very much deal making. Sure. Right. I mean, somebody would come in, you'd have to assess the market value of their thing. And it could be anything, right? It could be jewelry, watches. I mean, it could be a VCR, right? We weren't really in that business, but it could run the gamut from all, right. you know, this whole thing. And you had to assess the risk of the underwriting going bad, right? Will they come back? Will they, will they continuously simply pay their interest? And, and the asset value doesn't matter because they're a sticky customer. If the deal goes bad, what's the thing worse for a quick sale? All, and we had some tools and, and it was, again, pretty sort of street level stuff, but it was very much deal making. Yeah. And I was intrigued with it then. I would watch my, my boss, classic, I think he was second or third generation pawnbroker guy, just kind of stand there with his arms crossed, squinting at a guy, doing the math in his head, right? Rolex on his wrist. You know, sitting there hearing a guy's story about how he needed to get on the bus to go to the casino to win the money, to, the whole shebang, right? And he was a decently successful guy for a small business owner. And yep. I was pretty instantly attracted to this correlation between deal making and success and, and also the flexibility that came with the catch all term, right? This guy would show up to work every day. And some days it was, it was a, big deal for the shop. Some days it was just paying the bills, but it all still was governed by the same rule set, this deal-making rule set that I really, really like. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about that. I love that example because if you think about it, right? Yeah. There is valuation going on, right? I mean, you have, you have to come up and figure out what the value of the, of the item is, right? And that's a fundamental piece of deal-making is underwriting, right? The deal, the, how much are you going to be willing to give based upon the value and and also assessing credit risk, so to speak, right? The, sure. the, the credit worthiness or character or whatever it is of your of your of your borrower slash person who's pointing. So yeah, I mean, there's there's some very fundamental deal things that go into that that industry. So it's, yeah, very very fascinating. Love that. So Gabe, you had a you had an early success in business and a and a sale and also uh, some things that you know in our pre-call I, I think you really offered to talk about the lessons learned the things that went wrong as well which which listen any successful deal maker is going to have going to have those and will often tell you that they learn the most from the ones you know where there were issues or problems or they went bad so tell us a little bit about this company and the deal you did and what what went well what went wrong what you learn well i mean i think excuse me the uh, the list of failures is long right and and we should be proud of that because that that means there's hopefully a longer list or at least a par value list of successes somewhere. Yeah. But the first transaction that I lived through was uh, my first startup that I was uh, an early hire. It was not my company. I was like the third hire, or second or third. Yeah. And uh, the company was in, a, in the food products space, a manufacturer that pivoted to become a co-packer over time, a specialty, very specialty co-packer. And ultimately, in a really short period of time, scaled from startup, a couple hundred thousand dollars revenue or whatever, to many millions in a very, very short period of time. And I kid you not, everything broke, right? From an ops standpoint, forget the deal. The deal is pretty broken too. But we got to a place very quickly where we had to make a decision as to, does it make sense for us to learn how to fix this? Or does it make sense to just give it to somebody who has the systems and the expertise and the management and the capital to really scale this more formally? And 
I mean, when I say everything was broke, I mean, I mean, everything was broke, right? Like, I mean, we were implementing three production shifts in real time at remote buildings because we didn't have a singular facility. I, I doubt our financials were gap at the early on in that, in that sure. process. We were just kind of trading money for, for time and, and the hopes of some future upside with scale. And when we ultimately were acquired, we were acquired by our, our largest or, or one of our largest customers. So there was some synergistic shit. They kind of just came along and said, Hey, look, you're X percent of our product line already. Why don't you just come in house and you already yeah. have some of the, the puzzle worked out. And, and that was fine. But all the things that, that we didn't know, particularly because we were self-administering this deal and there was legal involved, but it wasn't, wasn't deal shops. It wasn't bankers. It was just people reading contracts. And there was so much that we didn't know that it kind of was shocking at close what happens, right? And it gives me a great level of empathy and perspective on what a seller goes through now. Cause we've all dealt with those sellers who are very distrustful of a buyer. And here we are buyers now, I think we're well-intentioned and ethical and we have a decent professional standard. And sometimes I go home and go, why does, what does this guy think I'm trying to do? I'm trying to give him millions of dollars. For How does he think I'm getting one over on him? Right. I mean, implied, but you know, yeah, there's always yeah. that, but as a one-time uneducated seller, the CFO of this little company at the time, what we didn't know could have filled just you know, a, a huge book. And I think for me, one of the most obvious things that we didn't know at the day of close, and we never really asked was our management team got disbanded. Mm. Why would, I mean, again, dummies, shame on us. We just kind of thought, hey, we're along for the ride. They're acquiring these assets. We're going to move into their facility. And the day it closed, they said, hey, jerkos, we already have a CFO. We already have a CEO. You just need a GM to run your production line. And we're looking at each other going, what? What, what just? And they give you a check or a wire, whatever. And uh, I think we actually got a physical check at the time. This was two decades ago and more than that. And just sort of walked out of the room and scratched our heads in the parking lot. I, I kid you not. And kind of said, well, what, what now? And I drove home. Said, what now? But that integration was in retrospect, pretty flawed yeah. because we weren't really well prepared for it. The, the lack of sort of pre and post visibility was, was pretty crappy. And I think the most painful part of the process beyond us simply being unprepared, because this is not a critique of our buyer at all, really. We just yeah. didn't, right? Yeah. There was some creation for early stage investors that by way of structure really wasn't handled appropriately. Mm. And we got into this odd situation where some people kind of got paid and some people kind of didn't get paid, at least yeah. not initially. And uh, it, was, it was ultimately worked out, but it wasn't a very uniformly beneficial transaction for all the stakeholders. It was pretty lopsided. Again, at no fault of the buyer, it's savvy buyer doing what savvy buyers do. No criticism. But it was a weird moment in time to say both, hey, we sold the company that we grew and the investors are calling me, asking me where their returns are. I don't work there anymore, right? Not only do I not work there, I don't really know. And I don't really have a sophisticated understanding of the implications of this deal structure versus reconciling that to honoring their various agreements. There's some convertible debt and all the classic startup yeah. financing mechanisms. And it, it was really a bizarre universe to live in this, this world where 
people would come up to me and pat me on the back, heard you guys sold. Congratulations. And then talk to a, a shareholder or an investor who calls me 20 times in a day until my corporate cell phone got disconnected because I didn't work there anymore. And then come showing up at my house, right? Going, what the hell's going on? And me very legitimately saying, I wish I knew. All I can say is I don't work there and my shares wired and here we are. If I can point you in the right direction, I'm happy to do so, but I don't really yeah. have a lot of access. So it was, uh, it was really a mixed success. And uh, I mean, speaking really frankly, in retrospect, it was pretty painful. Yeah. You know, I learned a lot and, and it was the seeds to a whole career in deal-making beyond some of my fun youth experience. But I, I didn't walk away from that feeling good about anything. Yeah. Quite the contrary. I felt really like a, a failure who no one else recognized as a failure because we kind of just read the byline, right? And right. we sold and I had this job and now we're over here. And it was, it was really quite a, a conflict-ridden, kind of lonely place to exist for a, a short period of time. I moved on. But the, the ambiguity, and I know a lot of sellers deal with this even in more sophisticated, larger, mature deals, the ambiguity of what next coupled with feeling like I let people down, wondering, did we sell too soon? Was this the right buyer or just the right now buyer? It really weighed heavily on me for quite a long time. Mm. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's fascinating. The, the so many lessons out of that. And one, one of the big ones obviously is, Hey, who are all the stakeholders in the deal and how, and, and are they taken care of? Whether it's investors, whether it's employees, do we need any guaranteed contracts? So we making sure the, the allocation of the right, you know, how are we taking care of the investors, all this stuff. And I'm sure those are some of the things you obviously long apply to deals going forward. So let, let's talk about that, that trajectory. So, I mean, you're, you're involved with three different companies now that are all in the M&A space in various ways, whether as an investor, whether as sourcing deals, right? Connecting folks, information, training, that kind of stuff. But Let's talk about, so where did you go from that first company and give us a little bit of the journey on how you ended up involved with the three companies that you are now. Connecting the dots in retrospect seems totally wacky. I, I, and honestly, I, I don't probably, again, because it was a challenging period in my life and also because I've been very focused on building other things. Yeah. I haven't spent a tremendous amount of time recently thinking about what happened in, in that that year or those years in between really kind of hitting my stride, which didn't happen for me until, until I was early still, maybe my early 30s, late 20s. But I spent a good chunk of time after that exit having a good title on my resume, which I was proud of, and having a transaction under my belt, which I mean, mixed blessing, but, but at a core level, really not know how to do anything, yeah. right? I mean, I just kind of had the tiger by the tail and we whipped around. Eventually, I fell off and here I was. So, all I really knew was how to survive hyper growth, rapid growth in our early stage company. But it turned out as our economic cycle evolved and we got out of the dot-com era of downturn, which is kind of parallel and into some exciting times for a minute, that being able to manage hyper growth became a, a marketable skill set. Sure. And that led to some consulting at, at, at rapid growth companies, most commonly on the kind of finance and broader accountability side, building the systems that we didn't have at that right. proto company that we knew we now needed. And I got really into the development of accounting systems and, and 
scorecarding and, and, and ultimately became a management consultant of sorts. I mean, that's what it was. And through that process, got to work with a bunch of great companies. We got to get a bunch of exposure and ultimately met a family investing in, in the geography I was in and became the CFO of this company, one of their portfolio companies, furniture company, components distributor, super sexy stuff. And, but great mentorship. They either launched or acquired, I don't know, five companies during my time there, something like that. And I actually got to learn all the things I, I didn't really know that well. Through that process, when we would acquire a company or I was seeing other deals happen and we were playing in the kind of quasi distressed space for a time. Yeah. Bankers would still get paid a bunch of money for us to buy a company that was kind of worthless. Right? I mean, uh, definition to be argued, worthless, but it was really intriguing to me, right? That the guy who did the deal would be paid sometimes not necessarily commensurate to enterprise value. Now that's a little less common, but in the workout space, generally there's more flexibility. Yes. And I was working pretty hard and learning on the job and it was pretty challenging. It was an exciting, good, healthy challenge. But in the back of my mind, I kept saying, these bankers I'm dealing with, they're making good money and they don't do shit, right? <laughs> Shame on me because I became a banker and that was not the case, right? <laughs> they are in their deep and we all have different, just all kinds of feelings about it. But my naive perspective at the time was, this seems like kind of a high reward to be in. And so I left that job um, without a, a real exact plan on what would happen next reached out to my universe of contacts and just kind of said, Hey, I want to become an investment banker. I started companies. I've helped manage growth companies. I've now worked in the integration of acquiring companies all in a pretty short period of time. I was late twenties at that time. And I think I can do this. And in a roundabout way, I got connected with a, a firm that, that sponsored my licensure at the time we all were licensed. It was a little different world, pre-no action letter on the M&A side, middle market. And eventually made my way through that process and became licensed and started doing deals as a just classic sort of middle market sell side advisor. And I think the team appreciated. I had an interesting perspective because I was more entrepreneurial. I didn't come up through a classic MBA or IV kind of component. In fact, I had dropped out of school and went back to school all before this, but I, I had a, an interesting kind of dynamic road of chasing royal dreams, re-engaging with my education. And I did some deals and the research director of the firm I was at became a buddy of mine. Fast forward, we've now been business partners for 15 years or something. And the entrepreneurial mind in me pretty quickly went to, wow, these guys know what they're doing, but the processes suck. Mm. The back office is ridiculous, the inefficiencies, the fixed cost model of having a research director and cap IQ and square footage and, and deal flow volume went up and down, but our costs yeah. stayed the same. And it seemed like a really interesting opportunity for us to innovate. And I had a little war chest and I didn't need to work every day, all day long. I was very lucky in that regard with some of these little transactions that had occurred. So I quit. I actually quit like two or three times and they hired me back and it's <laughs> they know who they are and I'm very appreciative, but I needed to focus on solving this, this problem, right? Yep. This fixed back office cost model problem that started on the sell side. And from that became the proto iteration of our first 
professionalized startup, CapTarget, which at the time had a back office service offering for M&A firms. Now, as you mentioned, it is a deal origination platform for the last decade or so to private equity. As we did that work, pretty quickly, we'd learned there were all these other verticals in the space or some verticals in the space that needed to be filled. Um, some years later, we started one of the first verticalized marketing agencies in the space, Merger Labs. It was acquired in 2018. I'm not super duper involved anymore, although I'm mm -hmm. on the board. And a few other companies, some of those failures we talk about and, and, and some that have turned into just yeah, other product and service lines of our kind of umbrella of companies. But we've spent the last, I guess, more like 13, 14 years just trying to fix problems for PE funds and to a lesser extent, investment banks, M&A firms. And of course, what happens when you do that? Well, eventually you go, I know how to do this, right? right? I've been a buyer. I've been a founder. I've been a, a seller. I've been a reorg guy. I've been a banker. So let's start doing deals. And uh, for a brief time, was partners in a growth equity firm, and then ultimately said, I want to focus more on the classic TV buy side and put my own capital to work, decided to not raise any money, put it all kind of on the line with one other partner, which became Verde Holdings. We, we've acquired three companies this year, might be able to do four. So a little shop, but kind of family office dynamics in that we don't use a tremendous amount of debt, particularly considering what the debt markets look like right now. It's all our equity. Yep. We back a singular operating partner who's become a, a wonderful asset to us. And so now I kind of have this many-sided funny table that I sit at where I'm a, a principal and a CEO and a board member of companies I used to found and, and, and some other companies I play supportive roles in, all in this deal-making space. So all of a sudden, well, it took whatever, decade plus, but <clears throat> I've seen thousands of deals. I've done a whole bunch of my own. We're LPs in other funds. We've started companies that are acquired by those groups. We've really lived through a lot, not not all, but a lot of the iterations of what that deal-making universe looks like. And, and now in 2023, we're going to kind of iterate on the Verde entity, and we are going to raise a, a committed fund, a $200, $250 million fund that we're going to launch the cap raise for in earnest after the, the holidays here. So that will be the next iteration, and it might be the last hurrah. For me right now, I'm, you know, I, the year's references are all wacky because it's a blur, but all you need to know is like you, everything is gray on me. <laughs> so I don't know how many more times I want to do this, but it's been a real pleasure and exciting roller coaster to, to do all of it in Love some it. capacity, Love. kind of on my own funny little terms. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I want to circle back to Verde and that evolution, but Let's just, uh, I just want to hit something on, on, on the cap target side. So when you say deal sourcing for PE firms, right? Talk to us a little bit more about that. Like, how does that sure. work? What does it do? What gap in the market did it fill? And then we'll get back to Verde Hold. So I view all the sourcing solutions in the, I use PE as a catch-all term, but called the professional acquisition space, whatever. Yeah. You're at corp dev division, you're a family office, you're a sponsor, whatever. For simple terms, PE. I view this, all these solutions on a spectrum, right? On one side of the spectrum, doesn't matter if it's the right or left side, you've got the fixed cost model, right? You're a buyer of businesses. You have a biz dev team. They have a bunch of tools. They build lists. They do outreach. They go to trade shows. They do what they do best. The benefit there is the variable costs are usually pretty modest. There's not a lot of finders fees, success fees. You'd see at a buy side, conventional buy side, right? But you have that fixed cost, right? 
and those teams are not inexpensive. Right. And at scale, they totally make sense. But for smaller groups, it can be challenging. So those smaller groups often, if they can't afford that, would have to rely on a self-directed effort, right? There's three guys in a room, three people in a room, and they go, okay, let's find a deal. But you get this weird stop-start thing. You got to do diligence, but you're leading diligence. The guy with the CFA is doing QOE. So now he can't take those. I mean, it, it, there's a resource constraint issue that becomes yes. pretty serious. Yes. So that's the kind of fixed cost side of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the full variable cost model, typically by way of the conventional buy side frame. Yes. Maybe there's a little retainer. Maybe there's not. There's certainly a success fee component, a finder's fee component. And over the years, as we've lived through a really hot PE buyer market, those fees have gone up, right? Yep. I know a few shops that pay 6% fees now, mm -hmm. right? On enterprise value. Um, that's a lot. It used to be a Lehman, right? And then it was a double Lehman. Why were you using Lehman Brothers as a benchmark? Who knows? But we still use that term for whatever reason. Hey, and, and for folks who don't know that, we won't get into the deal, but it, it was basically a sliding scale to be, where it went down based upon deal size, traditional Lehman, Lehman formula. Yeah. Yeah. So on that side, you have this variable cost model, but it's become fairly expensive, right? You do a $15 million deal, you owe somebody half a million dollars or whatever the math is, right? And in a world of increasingly high valuations, you got to start shaving where you can start shaving, right? Yeah. Some big firms, funds, that doesn't really matter. But there's a lot of folks in the middle market that, I mean, thousands of buyers that don't, you know, maybe they have $100 million in capital. Maybe they have some good debt and a little bit of equity. And it just doesn't make sense to spend hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars on, on buy-side fees, right? And they can be, I mean, I've made, I mean, some great money on buy-side fees over the years. To the tune of like, you know, millions of dollars. And I'm happy to have done that, but there's, there is a better way. Yeah. So in the middle of that spectrum, I consider cap target to be kind of the best of both worlds solution in that it's a fixed cost model, but it's less expensive than the internal model, significantly less expensive. Most cap target clients pay two grand, three grand, five grand to effectively have us manage the entire top of the funnel. And we don't charge any success fees. So. We're kind of like a buy-side firm or a finder um, that doesn't charge success fees and that has some better aligned incentives, which we don't need to get too into the weeds with. But buy-side firms, of course, they're going to give preference to see who sees their leads based on close rate probability based on fee structure. They have 10 clients, one pays two points, one pays six points. You better believe the one who pays six points is going to see every deal first. Right. That's not a criticism. That's just a reality of the yeah, economics that's, that's, and the incentives. Sure. Sure. So we, we get rid of all of that, right? And we say, you own your lead flow. You know what it costs. We bring the horse to water. If he drinks, if he doesn't drink, doesn't really matter. We're here to just provide this top of the funnel kind of function. And this year we onboarded nearly 200 new PE firms in the space. We've worked with some thousands of them over the last 10, 12 years or so. And for me now as a buyer, it's taught me a lot about sourcing and a lot about best practices and the, the deal-making and the search space. So that's kind of where we fit into all that and everything else right. we've done has kind of been spawned from this initial effort that, that we've undertaken by way of cap target. Great. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. 
Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Okay, so now let's get over to the Verde holding side. So up until now, you said it's been it's been your capital, right? You 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 and your partner or partners. You're about to raise a fund. Let's and you mentioned doing three deals this year, maybe a fourth. Talk about the kind of deals that that you that you're doing, and and you know, I mean, you know, less so obviously any specific companies or, or numbers, but but more so, you know, what, what's the criteria? What are you looking for? And um, it, let's let's start there, and then I want to go through because obviously it's a big difference running your own money and then and then raising a fund. So let's save that for a second. But in terms sure. of the deals you've been doing with your own money, what kind of things are you looking for? What's what's the sweet spot? What, how do you underwrite them? All that kind of stuff. Well, we kind of work backwards that I don't make any claim to have some super sophisticated perspective on where the market's going, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, th- this market that we're in. So instead, we kind of said, well, what leverage can we bring to the table to create an organic growth outside of capital? Because there's plenty of capital out there. We're not sure. going to win the capital. Sure. And my partner, he, I have a singular partner in, in, the, in the initiative right now who was pretty established in the commercial real estate space, pretty quickly said, well, look, I've sold billions of dollars worth of commercial buildings. So can we use that Rolodex to sell something right. into? And pretty quickly, we got into the catch-all commercial property services category. I know you've done a lot of discussing around some of the hot little sub-verticals there, which we're not super involved in the HVAC and the roofing, which plenty of groups have done amazing work in. We, we sure. don't play directly at that. But we started looking at the adjacent spaces and ended up on commercial landscape maintenance, commercial porter services to a lesser extent, touching all the stuff on the ground level outside commercial office and similar space. We bought our, our platform, a 47-year-old clipping company that was actually pretty hairy good company, but didn't, it had a bigger residential to commercial mix than we would have wanted, but the pricing was really preferential. And we spent a year not only acquiring add-ons, but transforming that company into a nearly all commercial service provider by way of our own network. And we'll probably exit that portfolio in 2023, although we don't have a mandate that requires it, which is nice. We can just cash flow if we need to, but it now has nice recurring revenue from great clients and pretty predictable model. And because all of our companies are in Southern California, we don't contend with snow removal. We don't get into tree trimming, some of these other more regional add-on services. So it's pretty simple stuff. And as we move on to our committed fund initiative, it will likely have a similar, but different it's it's going to be in this same kind of catch-all space because we have an ops team now and our, we've developed a deal flow pipeline around this and probably just move up market a little. If we're buying companies, our EBITDA floor is 500K, right? At least for add-ons. Yeah. And I mean, anybody in the space knows, good luck how many deals you have to do to deploy $200 million of 500K EBITDA. Right? <laughs> it's just not going to scale. But we wanted, speaking of the new initiative, to be able to go to the LP marketplace and say, hey, we put our own butts on the line. Yep. Our return numbers are as expected. And the model scales, right? The origination component scales. The 
op partner search scales, et cetera, et cetera. So I viewed this as a walk before we run initiative and our, our, our partners, my, my GP and, and our operating partner are probably tired of me hearing or hearing me say on calls as we address challenges, I'll always chime in and just say, guys, all we need to establish here is that we can work together and get the terminal returns, right? All this other stuff we're worried about doesn't actually matter. Yeah. Because I want to tell a story based on their, a reality that we need to achieve in a short period of time. And that's become our focus now. So talk to me a little bit. One of the things we cover a lot is various aspects of the mindset of a deal maker. You obviously had some of these aspects and experience that had you very early on, whether it's just the focus on making money or the pawn shop and things like that. But I think there is a shift when you are investing in deals from when you go from using only using your own money to using other people's money. And I went through it personally when we raised a couple of funds and did some real estate investment back in, in, the, in the mid 2000s. And uh, so talk to me a little bit about that decision, right? And also what comes with that. I mean, it's very different than being responsible to investors. I mean, you obviously had a little bit of experience more on the corporate side in, your, in that first company when, where you had some Actually, as you said, invest the shit up at your house. So I'm sure because of that, you, you're not going into this approach bri- blindly by having responsibility for other people's money. So talk to me a little bit about that decision-making process. Well, I mean, at some point to scale the effort, the capital has to come from somewhere, right? This industry has been great to me and I'm proud of the successes that myself and my team has had. But we have, I mean, everybody has a finite level of resource, right? And, and we're not exempt from that. So there's a practical consideration there. Yep. And along with that, as you're alluding to comes compliance and communication and a year long roadshow and could be a thousand meetings yep. right in that year split amongst a couple partners. And I'm certainly in a vacuum, not looking forward to that, but it's, I don't even want to call it a necessary evil, but it's a, it's an appropriate trade-off for the ability to scale and, and participate and carry at a, at a, a larger level. Yeah. Beyond that, I, I do think there is value in having a more robust advisory board, sophisticated LPs that we can rely on to a modest extent as support, right? Yep. I mean, yep. anybody with these kind of resources, these family offices, these high net worth individuals to a lesser extent, some of these institutional investors also have great experience that they're willing to to share or even by way of selection in us versus someone else can validate some of our assumptions because they're they're have a higher level of sophistication maybe some other investor types so there's some value in that sure but on a on a personal level like i joked about earlier and it's half a joke it's half real i mean how many more years do i want to do this i said i wanted to retire when i was 40 i could have but i didn't right and now here i am I enjoy working. I enjoy deal making. Everybody who knows me well laughs when I say I, I got one more big push in. You'll be working <laughs> 80 years old. I don't believe that. I want to go surfing. I want to go whatever, walk my dog on longer walks, just enjoy the, the fruits of my labor. And to, to do that, we need to swing a bigger bat. Yep. Right. And so here we are making the attempt to swing that bigger bat. That said, I don't imagine I'll be participating in fund five, yeah. right? I mean, we're, we, we may call this 
fun too, some technicality there. And maybe we'll do a, a, a three with me around. But then I'd like to switch gears and maybe focus more on some give back initiatives. I've done a lot of mentorship, which is really meaningful to me. Yes. And maybe just a little more recreating and, and connecting with my, my family and my loved ones and my community and focusing for decades on just making money. I know you've had guests that have said similar things and you've lived through this to some extent can realize the short-sighted nature, right? Eventually you have all the stuff. I got a lot of stuff. I got a lot of, I mean, all the stuff you ever wanted, I ever wanted, I got, I see it and I buy it. And it's kind of a personal point of pride, right? It's an easy way to, to validate your success, but there's other stuff that's it's much more important. And I think it's going to be time after one more big swing to focus on the next iteration of all that important stuff to me. Yeah. Listen, I, I get it. I mean, I think, I think that's, an, I mean, not for everybody. I mean, but it's natural evolution for a lot of people, especially I think people who are self-aware and, and is it often goes from, from stuff to experiences to service, right? Mm -hmm. like, like how much stuff can you have? Or how much stuff? Like, all right, no, I want to really have great experiences in life personally and whatever. And then it's like, okay, what, what kind of impact can I make? And I feel like, I feel very blessed because I've come from a service impact mentality even through the entire time, as you have, but you're right. I mean, obviously you get a point where that can become more of a focus and, and stepping that up more as, as you're spending, have to spend less time in, in, in building what you're building. So in terms of the, the fund, I mean, obviously you said you, you, you're probably going to be looking in similar areas. You, you're going to be, I mean, nobody can predict the future on anything, but obviously we're in a market right now where we've come out of a grow, 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 all kinds of money in the space, valuations being high. And now it's interesting to see what 2020, 2023 will bring. We're recording this at the in December of 2022. It'll be released a few months into 2023. But obviously we got, I mean, inflation starting to come down, but it's, we got interest rates. Most people think the Fed's going to push up some more, maybe not at another three quarters of a point, but maybe at half, whatever it is. And in the market, the stock market's been a bit up and down. What, how do you look at all? I mean, obviously you're going out to raise the fund. You don't, I don't assume you'd be doing that if you didn't think you could raise it. And if you didn't think you could deploy that capital in a way that still made sense, but talk to us a little bit about how any of those factors and market conditions affect how you look at deals. Well, I think a balanced perspective would acknowledge some of the challenges, but also acknowledge some of the opportunities, right? <clears throat> Fortunes have been made in down markets. Uh, we may not gain the benefit as significantly of, of leverage to juice returns, right? To bolster returns. But we may be entering an environment where valuations are back to normal. I mean, I think the conversation about global asset bubble, right. air quotes bubble, what do I know, is not too far-fetched, right? So the hope is that coming out of some really exciting times and some really fruitful times by way of our potential LP base, there should be capital there that still needs to be put to work. And if it can be put to work at a valuation discount or a normalized valuation, there should be some hedge to risk from, from there. I mean, yep. if the market is more risky, but we're paying 40% less for assets or something, there's, I mean, blanket example statement, but there's probably some equilibrium in there that makes sense. But beyond that, I'm a big believer in kind of the show must go on mentality, right? Yeah. If yeah. we sit here and talk about all the bad news, well, things are terrible. 
And if you turn off the news, you go, oh, the nice house I'm sitting in. And wow, the weather's pretty nice outside. And I had a pretty fun day and yeah. I'm making some money and my team's happy. And then all of a sudden there's, there's no bad news, right? And I'm not yeah. suggesting that ignorance is bliss and that we can be ignorant managers and custodians of funds, but that there's a healthy balance between recognizing that there is a, a new wave from not entirely understood risk on the horizon, but that somebody will be doing the work. And why should it not be us amongst many other smart, hardworking folks doing the work? Beyond that, specific to private equity, specific to middle and even lower middle market private equity, I mean, there's an important function to the American economy here as well. I mean, there's all kinds of great data about how many folks PE employs, right? From a portfolio standpoint, PE is integral to this amazing, robust American economy to continue to do whatever it's going to do, right? So in some sense, we also have an obligation, right? And the third leg of that stool is, what the hell else am I going to do, right? (laughs) Sit here, twiddle my thumbs. I I think this is an appropriate time in the story arc of my own career and and some of our past accomplishments and acquired skill sets that now is the time for me to demonstrate what we've learned, right? And I'm not really interested in waiting another seven to 10 years to do that. So here we are. That, That all said, I'm pretty optimistic about our activity as, as we get into this this next cycle. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I won't spend a lot of time on this because, well, first of all, we're coming to the end of our time, but also I've talked about it a bunch on prior episodes. Is is all the stats that show exactly what you said? I mean, some biggest fortunes are made in down economies. There's no correlation between certain economic factors like interest rates and deal volumes. So, so anybody who gets stopped by that, deal structures may change, different segments may do better or worse, underwriting may change, whatever it is. But yeah, staying in the game is, is the key thing. And the other thing, I don't think I've said in this podcast, but it's sort of a, it's a belief of mine. So I'll mention it is that, but it's, it's almost like a mantra saying, and I say it to my team as well. And it's again, it's not being ignorant or blind. I'm, I'm aware and taking into account in my decision making the, the, the economic factors, including any headwinds. But I, I, I always believe that my personal economy is not necessarily tied to the general economy. Sure. Right. Like we get to create our own personal economy. It's not in a vacuum. And to some extent, it's impacted by the general economy. I mean, I got, I remember I got crushed in 2008, 2009, Great Recession, right? On the flip side, we grew significantly through the pandemic because that didn't, because of the sectors we were in or whatever. But, but the point is, I think that's a great contrast because my my quote unquote personal economy or my company's personal you know economy was significantly impacted by one significant event, but another significant event actually we did really well. So it's not necessarily correlated. And I think a lot of times, like I think that's another mindset of a deal maker thing, is that the people who get stopped by that are really not, and I'm not saying this in a judgmental way, but they're not like that deal maker mindset has you figure out, mm-hmm. okay, I'm still gonna do deals, just what are they gonna look like, right? I'll take into account these factors and whatever. But and look for the opportunities, like you said. So, you know, I, well, I love that. that. I love when other people bring those examples because I try to preach that on this podcast and I don't want them to always hear it from me, you know? <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I think there's there's something to be said about just this idea that to your to your personal economies kind of a concept that there are all kinds of spaces that are counter-cyclical, 
There are all kinds of data points that are not necessarily meaningful. We talk about the price of gas all the time because we see the price of gas 30 times a day as we drive down the street, right? But at the end of the day, look, my office is a couple of miles from here. What and I have an electric car, like what and solar. So what am I actually spending on gas? I'm not saying I'm immune to its impacts, but there are plenty of these metrics that we feel and 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 see every day that really are less meaningful, at least to to us specifically today and what we do, than they are to other people or that they are to the general, whether it's the culture or the media or whatever wants us to think. Not because of any nefarious tilt, but just because they're easy metrics to talk about. Price sure. of milk, price of gas, et cetera. But if we drill down, there's there's other stuff going on there that can be way more meaningful. If we can understand the metrics that actually matter to whatever our given space is, I think we can have a more evenly colored picture of, of what the heck is going on. That all said, nobody has a crystal ball, but to belabor the Wayne Gretzky quote, right? I mean, we miss 100% of the shots we don't take. So we're going to keep taking shots and keep doing what we know how to do. And I have a feeling it'll shake out pretty well. Yeah, good stuff. So Gabe, before I ask you my final question, people want to find out more about what you're doing, whether it's any any of the companies or potentially if they're interested in the, in the fund or anything like that, what's the best place for them to find out more information? Social media footprint is pretty modest. I, I think there's some real bad stuff going on on the internet here. I know it's, it's um, part of your ethos is what I, what I, what I've indulged, right? Yeah. It is. But I mean, certainly you can find me on LinkedIn, look up Gabe Galvez or Gabriel Galvez. You'll see me there listed. I'm happy to connect with folks. I like to have these conversations. I think they're really important. BE guys out there listening should always consider checking out CapTarget. I think we have a valuable a value prop, captarget.com. And beyond that, you know, I'll just walk down the street and see if you find me wandering around staring at the sky in the middle of the day, because that's often what I'm doing. And I think there's a lot of value into doing stuff like that as well. And, and listen, he, ga- he gave it away in the bio, bio. When you reach out to him, just tell, tell him you're willing to listen to him talk about the universe. And I think well, listen, be Corey, in- I mean, you know, if we want to contextualize all the silly stuff we're doing, which I mean, it has meaning and it has, there's some importance, but our, our, our lack of understanding on, on why we're here, where here even is, when here even is, is really baffling. And it's, I think it's important for us to allocate a little mind share to that as we live in this day-to-day value creation conversation, because there are ways to create value beyond simply return on equity multiples. And some of those come through that, whether it's introspective or communal conversation about these other things that might fundamentally change the application of all this stuff we do every day at some point in the future. And I think we need to have a balanced approach to valuing the, the little stuff to the big stuff. 100%. 100%. My final question on the podcast, Gabe, is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom for, for all people from oppression in the world to the reason I haven't had a boss in decades and I run my own companies. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Well, I mean, I, I use a different word, but I, I think I have the same sentiment in that I talk about autonomy a yeah. lot, whether it's personal autonomy or, or autonomy as a team to make decisions, et cetera. But I think the byproduct of freedom or autonomy is this awesome opportunity for growth, right? I think freedom, particularly because the word's been so politicized, has become to, to gut punch feel like something else. And I view it as this opportunity 
to become who you want to be, to learn what you want, to impact who you want, to collaborate with whom you want, to talk about what you think is important. These, these, this is what, what freedom really gets you, right? It's not about only the things we, we talk about in the kind of the day-to-day context of freedom. It's, it's the autonomy to explore and apply wherever you want. And we happen to live in this socioeconomical model that really supports that. Yeah. And when we talk about America being great and freedom, and there's all kinds of counter arguments now to some of the challenges, and, and I don't want to minimize those too much, but we have personal autonomy still. The, the choice to have those conversations, the choice to explore those ideas, to work with those people, to have these conversations. And I think that level of autonomy is one of the most transformative things. I don't view it as a, as a, a static existence. We are free, right? No, it, it, it's a transformative tool. What do we do with freedom? Yeah. Right. What can we do with autonomy? What can we do with freedom? And everyone has a different answer to that, but I think it's more important than freedom ain't free, right? Which it's not, but let's, so, so let's do something, right? Let, let's Love own it. that. So now what? What are we going to do? And we all get to make that choice. And I don't believe there's a right or wrong choice to make, but just pursuing that, I think, is is really a, a highest and best use of of our, our our most you know valuable brain power. Love it, love it, Gabriel Gavis. Thank you for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest Pop podcast. Thanks, Corey. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.